This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. If you have your Bibles with you, please open to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 2. If you need a Bible, you can actually uh, go ahead. There's some on the back table back there. Feel free to grab one uh, if you would so like. Uh, love to have everyone have a copy of God's Word in front of them today. We're, we're going to be in this book for the next several months, and this book of Judges is really all about how God's people get caught in this cycle. The, the cycle is that they, they turn away from God, and then they end up getting in a bunch of trouble as a result and in distress. God rescues them from that, and then they do the same thing over and over and over again. The cycle just keeps repeating itself and ends up spiraling further and further down into even more and more chaos. And so really what this book of Judges is all about, it is all about our need for a better judge, a better rescuer, a greater savior. It's all about our need for Jesus and how he came to truly break the cycles that we can find ourselves in. And so we're calling this sermon series, Breaking the Cycle, Rebellious People Pursued by the Faithful God. I'm going to read this morning a lengthy section of scripture, so stick with me. It's in Judges chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 6, all the way through verse 23. Let's turn our attention to God's word and hear God address us through it. God says to us, starting in verse 6, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance. And Temeth Heres and the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaesh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreth, so that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer stand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands who had plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, 
and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the, Lord, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Let's just have a moment of prayer and ask for God to speak to us now through the preaching of his words. Just bow your head and have a time of prayer between you and God, asking him to address you through what we just heard read. And now please pray also for me, that God would help me in my weakness to be of benefit to you and glorifying to him. God, we love you and we're here to hear from you. Would you please come and have your way with us? We pray this for the glory of Christ. Amen. Have you ever forgotten something that was really important. Forgotten something that was really important. I remember one time I walked into one of my college classes and on the blackboard it said, back, I went to college and back used to have blackboards, and uh, on the blackboard it said, test today. And I had forgotten that there was a test today. And you just get that, that pit in your stomach like, oh no, like what, what have I done? We all can forget things from time to time. But I guarantee you that whatever story of forgetfulness you have, it pales in comparison to a man named Stephen Thomas. Stephen Thomas currently owns $320 million worth of Bitcoin. He bought it all the way back when Bitcoin was really cheap and it's now skyrocketed in value. But, but this Bitcoin that he bought, he put it on a USB drive many years ago and he can't remember the password to unlock the drive. And so he can't access this wealth that he has amassed. And this USB drive that he has is one of those that if you, if you enter the wrong password so many times, it ends up erasing everything on the drive. And so 10 times is the maximum amount, and he just tried number 8, and it did not work. And so he has two more tries left before he loses out on $320 million because he can't remember a password. So next time you can't remember something, be grateful that you're not Stephen Thomas and, and what he has forgotten. Yet in our passage today, in our passage today, we see that there is something even more significant than, than losing a lot of money. There's something even more significant that the Israelites had forgotten. This passage starts by talking about the death of Joshua, which was already mentioned back actually at the start of the book, so something to understand when you're reading the Bible. They don't do their history the way we do. We just like start with one and move through it chronologically. 
they, they do it narratively. So Joshua's already dead, but they're bringing up his death again because it fits their narrative theme at this moment. And so, so this is repeating this fact to set up what's going to happen. It says that after the death of Joshua, another generation arose. So these are the children of the people who were alive during Joshua's time. That Joshua generation is dead, and there's now their children that are risen up. And verse 10 tells us that these people did not know the work of the Lord or what he had done for Israel. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that they didn't know about the Lord. Oh, they certainly knew plenty about the Lord. I mean, it was their parents who were slaves in Egypt. I'm sure they went to bed with bedtime stories about how God had rescued them by the hand of Moses. I'm sure they sang songs around their family campfire about walking through the Red Sea. I'm sure that, that some of them maybe had even seen the walls of Jericho fall down when they were young children. Oh, they knew all about the Lord, but the word here for know means something far deeper than just learning some facts that you can recite. It means more than just knowing about someone. The word for know here in verse 10 means to have a relationship with someone. These Israelites, they could have filled out a Wikipedia page about God, but they did not actually have a relationship with God. He had become distant and disconnected from their lives, not because he went anywhere, but because they had forgotten him. What we're seeing in this passage is that God loves his people too much to leave them and only knowing some things about him. He wants them and he wants us to have a relationship with him that is always increasing in intimacy and depth. And so I'm going to tell this morning's sermon, knowing God more intimately. Knowing God more intimately. And I think this passage really shows us kind of three things through, through, through three questions. The first question is, what gets in the way? What gets in the way of our relationship with God? And how can we be on guard against that? Second question, what happens when we're disconnected from God? What happens when we're disconnected from God? Why should we care about that? And then third, how can we draw closer to God? How can we draw closer to God? How can God meet us in that? So, so question number one, what, what gets in the way of our relationship with God? Well, verse 11 tells us that what got in the way of these people's relationship with God, what, what led them to know about God, but it's not to really know God. We're, we're told in verse 11 that Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Verse 12 goes on to say, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. The Israelites, if you remember from last week, they were supposed to drive out the people who were living in their land. But instead, they let them stay. And what we see happening here is those who are around them begin to exert an influence on them. The Israelites start to notice these gods that these Canaanites are worshiping. The Canaanites had a god named Baal, who was the storm god, the god who brought the rain. And there was the goddess Ashtoreth. She was Baal's consort, the goddess of fertility. She brought the harvest. And so you can see why they went together, right? The storm is the one who brings the harvest. Back then, it was an agricultural society. 
everything was about farming. And so having rain come at the right time and having the harvest happen at the right moment was literally a matter of life or death. Now, the Israelites were supposed to trust that God would take care of them. But if the rains weren't coming at the right time, if food was beginning to get scarce because the harvest was being depleted and delayed, you can see why they'd be tempted. Maybe there's this other gods that we need to try on for size. Maybe our God isn't enough. And it's not that they necessarily rejected their God. They just added other gods to their God. And I think for us, while we don't have many temples of Baals and Ashtoreth still around, can't we also sometimes be tempted to think that maybe God isn't enough? When things don't happen like we think they should or when we think they should, can't we be tempted that maybe we need to add in some other things to our lives? And so God tells us that He is our comfort. We go through something hard and we think we need to add in some other things and so we turn to binge eating or overly drinking or going on shopping sprees or watching pornography or pursuing relationships that we know God says we are to avoid but we just we just need this right now because God isn't enough or maybe we come in and we worship on Sunday but then on Monday when I'm at my job like his word like his word doesn't seem very practical for what I'm doing so God God is good in here in this building but but he isn't going to be able to help me out here he's going to be able to help me with 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 my neighbors that I'm talking to on the street like so I'll talk one way to Christians here but another way to other people out there and we can separate our lives into spiritual things and practical things and forget that God is the Lord of all things so I think the question we need to ask ourselves is what can we be tempted to turn to and trust instead of the Lord? What can we be tempted to turn to and trust instead of the Lord? Whatever that thing is, or whoever that person is, that's your true worship. Worship is not just the songs that we sing with our lips. It's really about what we most supremely treasure in our lives. And how easy it can be for us to have lips that praise God, but hearts that are in fact very far from God. Because we are caught up in the worship of other gods. We are treasuring, valuing, and living for things other than Him. The Canaanite false gods offered a different comfort for the Israelites to go to. They offered a different way for them to Live And the Israelites went right along with it. And then they joined them in their false worship. Now here's the thing we have to understand about worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth. The thinking about how to get Baal and Ashtoreth to come together and, and bring the rains and bring the harvest. The, the thinking was, well, they're a couple. And so rain and harvest come together when they have relations with one another. And so what the Canaanites did to encourage Baal and Ashtoreth to have relations with one another is they would have prostitutes in the temple. And you could go to the temple and you could sleep with these prostitutes and the idea was Baal and Ashtoreth would see what was happening and then get the same idea, be put in the mood and go do the same thing and that would bring the rains, that would bring the harvest. And so you can imagine the Israelites seeing that and being like, 
well, that way of worship's a little different than ours. Maybe, maybe there's some things there that we need to try. See, the Canaanite way of worship offered a freedom from all the strength. I mean, really, their temple advertisement was, come and do whatever you want here. What happens in the temple of Baal stays in the temple of Baal. Freedom from restraint is what we are to worship. And so again, while we do not have temples of Baals necessarily today, I think our culture is still worshiping the exact same thing. The temples and the gods have changed, but the ethic is still the same. Listen to almost any pop song, watch almost every movie, hang out on social media for any length of time, and what you'll see is that the ethic that's put in front of us is that what is best for us is freedom from all restraint. What 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 we're to worship is the freedom from whatever's holding us back. And so, you know, if you grew up in a certain kind of family, you need, you need to reject all that kind of, you need to reject that. You, you need to embrace this type of lifestyle. You need to be free from whatever anyone else thinks. You need to be free to be you. That's the way to be truly happy. It's, it's an ethic of freedom from. But biblically, that's not any kind of freedom whatsoever. Because it's being free from restraint actually a freedom. Isn't it the restraint of discipline that frees the musician to be able to play their instrument beautifully? Isn't it the restraint of practice that frees the athlete to be able to perform at a high level? They don't give themselves to all things. They give themselves to one thing, and it's that one thing that frees them to be able to do what they've been gifted to do. A good parent should restrain their kids all the time. I restrain my kids all the time from eating all the sugar that they want. Because I want them to live past the age of 18. You know, like if I give them their way, a bowl of sugar every day, like a bowl of sugar every day does not keep the doctor away, kids. It brings type 2 diabetes on. Like, like come on, you know. And so I'm trying to restrain them. Why? Not because I'm trying to hinder them. Not because I'm trying to hurt them. But because I love them and because I know what is best for them. And so God tells us that freedom is not freedom from all restraint, but true freedom is not a freedom from, it's a freedom to. It's a freedom to live in obedience to him. It's a freedom to do and and, and act the way that he says is best. But how often we turn to other things. How often we turn away from God instead of living free to God. How often we turn from things and and we see that like like these Israelites, how how did it happen? How, How did they just happen to 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 find their way down into these temples of Baal. Well, we're told in verse 12, the reason that they are worshiping these gods, it says it's because they were the gods of the people who were around them. Notice, they didn't adopt the gods of the Egyptians. That's not who they're worshiping, because they weren't living in Egypt anymore. That's not who was around them. They were worshiping the gods of the Canaanites, because... Who or what we surround ourselves with is who we will end up becoming. 1 Corinthians 15 is very, 33 is very clear. Bad company corrupts good morals. Who or what we surround ourselves with is who we are going to become. We are like sponges. Everything we take in, we, we put ourselves in environments and we take it in and that now becomes then part of who we are. And yet, I've met very few people who actually admit that. Most people think, like, well, I can be in this type of environment, and it's not going to affect me. I'm strong enough to be here and to stay here. Almost everyone thinks, like, 
like, okay, maybe bad company corrupts good morals if you're weak. That's just not me. Most of us think, I can handle this. Can't tell you how many counseling appointments have had people who have just made a shipwreck of their life, and it's all started because they thought they could handle something that they couldn't. I can handle being in this situation that I know displeases God, but it won't affect me. I can handle being in this relationship with someone who does not share my faith, which I know is against the word of God, but that won't affect me. But to think that we'll have a different outcome than these Israelites, to think that we can be around things that won't affect us is, is, is to, well, at best, it's naive because it discounts all of biblical history. At best, it's naive. At worst, it's willful rebellion against God. These Israelites were drawn away because of the environment that they were constantly around. And it wasn't that they stopped believing in God. It wasn't even that they stopped identifying as God's people. No, they were still calling themselves the Israelites. Which, I mean, like, that, that's how they were identified. They were the people of God. But what they said with their lips was contradicted by their lives. And they were living no differently than the pagan people around them. And so because of that, the relationship with God was disrupted and disconnected. God was pushed far away from them because they did not believe that God was enough. They had turned to other things. Because they sought freedom from God instead of the freedom to obey God. And because they surrounded themselves with people who were not following God. The relationship with God was disconnected and disrupted. So what's the big deal about that? What's the, what's, what, who cares? Like, okay, other people can choose other things. That's fine. Like, let them do them. Well, let's look at point number two. What, what, what happens when we're disconnected from God? What happens when we're disconnected from God? Verse 14 and 15 does not give us a pretty picture. It says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies, so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. We saw last week that God's anger comes from God's love. The opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is apathy. Because we only get angry about that which we actually care about. Now God says that in our anger we are not to sin. So anger is an emotion. And it's the appropriate emotion when we've been wrong. But we're not supposed to uh, sin in response to that. Anger is an emotion, and for us humans, sin is often what quickly follows after that emotion. But here, God is right to be angry, because God has been wrong. And God, because he is holy, is not sinning in his anger. No, he is bringing justice. The people have rejected him, and so he's allowing them to experience the justice of life without him. They thought they could live without God, and so now God is saying to them, essentially, fine. Have it your way. And he removes his hand of protection over their lives. And as a result, the Canaanites, that they thought were their friends, the people that they had been partying with at the club down at Baal's temple, end up becoming their plunderers. And the Israelites end up becoming their slaves. And should we think, well, that seems harsh for God to allow them to experience that. Friends, if it seems harsh for God to allow us to experience the consequences of our sin, then we're not understanding the nature of what our sin actually is. 
Verse 17 gives a pretty graphic picture of what our sin is. It says, they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. I think sometimes we, we think of sin as just like these arbitrary rules that we break, and we're, okay, we're supposed to keep them, but we don't, and what's the big deal? Why does God get so bent out of shape after, about this stuff? We need to understand, friends, that sin is not about just doing the wrong thing. Sin is about unfaithfulness to the God who loves us and made us to be in a relationship with Him. Sin is betrayal. Sin is spiritual adultery. Our sin is not just doing the wrong thing. Our sin is breaking God's heart. Whenever we turn to, to things other than God for our joy, whenever we turn to other things for a sense of meaning, for a sense of satisfaction, for our comfort, when we chase after other things more than Him, we break His heart. And we get robbed of the joy and satisfaction that we can only receive from him. These people ended up being plundered and enslaved physically. We experience that spiritually. Worshiping things other than God will always rob us and enslave us. Because they will never be able to give to us what only he can. They'll never be enough. And so we'll just have to keep chasing and chasing, chasing, thinking that the next thing will finally give us the hit that we're looking for. And we stay enslaved and shackled to these false gods that we think are offering a comfort that they can never deliver. Author David Foster Wallace, who's not a Christian, uh, he gave this really insightful commencement speech a few years, years ago where he actually talked about the enslavement of worship. This is what he wrote. I hope he comes to know Christ. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. But pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we know all this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciousness. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud. Always on the verge of being found out. And so on. Whatever we worship will end up eating us alive. When we turn something into an idol we'll end up making ourselves miserable. We're going to be miserable because we're going to be chasing it and we're so stressed out that we don't have it, whatever that it is or whoever that person is. Okay, th this is not delivering what I want. This is not giving me what I want. And so I'm stressed out because I'm not getting what I think I need. Or I'm fearful because I think I'm going to lose it. Or I'm anxious or I'm depressed or I'm discouraged. Like we have all these things that just keep us trapped and we're wondering where they're coming from. And maybe there are some biochemical things that we need to deal with Right? We believe in medicine. Praise God for that. 
But I think they're, if we're feeling stress, we're feeling anxious, if we're feeling fearful, if we are in conflict, that's also probably showing us there's a false God that we are worshiping. They are signs emotionally that we might be shackled in some slavery. Because whenever we make something into a, an idol, we'll always end up miserable. And then, even after we get it, we will find out it's not enough. And we'll be miserably disappointed by it. Tom Brady can win six Super Bowls and say he still feels miserable and like they never delivered what he hoped they would. Friends, let's just say there's nothing you can accomplish in life that's finally going to satisfy you. Oh, seven, I forgot. I don't count the one, I don't count the one in Tampa Bay. Um, <laughs> got a Tampa Bay fan here. I'm grateful for you. Praise God. Um, I want to go off on a rip on them, but I'm just going to stay contained, stay contained. 11 a.m. service, this, this can go long. That's what, no, I'm just joking. Um, all right, back to the text. The point is, friends, it won't satisfy. It won't satisfy. We are wired to be worshipers. We are wired to love and value and treasure, to live for things. We're wired that way. But what we worship matters supremely. Because if we worship anything else other than God, we'll always be miserably disappointed because our souls were made to only be satisfied in worshiping Him. He's the only treasure. He's the only love. He's the only beauty. He's the only glory that can truly satisfy our thirsty souls. And so when we chase false gods and become disconnected from God, we are setting ourselves up to a lifetime of slavery to misery. And I know those are hard words to say, but friends, this is just real life. This is real life. And God put this chapter in the Bible for a reason. He loves us. And so as we see the people of Israel doing what we can so often do, turning to false gods, as, as we see them living this way, th this is not meant to be a man, how could they do that? No, it's meant to be, Lord, protect me from that. Because I don't know about you, but I see myself on these pages. I see how prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's the struggle of our lives. And so this is meant to be a big warning sign to us. That God's putting up in his love. It's a big warning sign saying, bridge out ahead. Don't keep going that way. Turn aside. That's what the Lord's doing. He's, he's warning us. Not because he's trying to scare us. He's warning us because he's trying to turn us. That's what God does. He warns because he loves. And so he says, bridge out. That way is only death. Turn the other way. He warns us because he wants to turn us. And so his warning is, is turning from, but it's also an invitation to turn to him. We don't just ever turn away from things. We are then to turn to the Lord. God warns us, but then he also invites us. And here I think he invites us by giving us a path through which we can draw close to him. And so our final question this morning, how can we draw close to God? How can we draw close to God when we're in the middle of this disconnection and disruption? Well, I think there are two things that we see in this passage. First, notice how this passage speaks about God's response to his people's slavery. They are plundered, they're enslaved. We read at the end of verse 15 that they were in terrible distress. And I just want to ask you the question, do they do anything in between verses 15 and 16? 
they're just in distress. But what does God do? They're just in distress. They're just wallowing in their sin and the brokenness of what they had done. But the text says, then the Lord raised up some judges. They were wallowing in the sinfulness of their sin. But it says that the Lord raised up some judges to save them out of the hands of those who plundered him. And so what we are seeing here is that God saved them, not because they cried out to him, not because they were even looking to him. No, when they were caught in their distress, when they were consumed in a mess of their own making, when they had forgotten God, what we're seeing in verse 16 is that God had not forgotten them. And so because God had not forgotten them, while he allowed them to feel the sting of their sin for a season, he did not let that be the end of their story. He sent them judges, which we saw last week is another way of saying rescuers or saviors. God raised up these judges to save his people, oh yes, from their enemies, but really what is he saving them from? He's saving them from their cells because it's their own fault they keep going in with these enemies. And he doesn't just do this once, but look at verse 18. It says, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them. The Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Notice, whenever the Lord raised up, not a judge, whenever he raised up judges, meaning that he did it multiple times. He did it again, again, and again. They are groaning because of their sin, and God is not responding to their worthiness no, he's responding, he's responding to their brokenness. He is moved by compassion, not because the people are crying out to him. He's moved by compassion because of how far they have removed themselves from him. And the very sin which had broken his heart is the sin that he sends a judge to save him from. And this is God's heart for us, friends. This is God's heart for us. He never says, that's it, I've had enough. He always says, I'm going to save you again. And I think we need to hear this because so often, I think we get in our own way when it comes to our relationship with God. We get in our own way because we mess up and we sin and we feel like he's had it with me this time. There's just no way. There's no way that I can draw near to him again. This time I've, I've done too much. This time I've strayed too far. This time it's been too long. I just, I just can't change. I can't, I can't come to him and say, yeah, it's me again. And yeah, it's that again. And so we stay distant from God. Because we don't believe that we could ever really be worthy of his love. But friends, what we're forgetting is that his love has never been about our worthiness. The Lord raised up judges here to save his people, not when they were worthy, but when they were sinning against him. And all these judges in this book are pointing us forward to the ultimate judge, the ultimate savior, the great rescuer, Jesus Christ, who we're told in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God chose his love for us. And that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, through the false gods that we chase, we create messes of our own making, and all that we deserve from God is to be left 
to the consequences of our sin. But the good news of the gospel is that God refuses to let us go. And so Christ came, God raised Jesus up as our great judge to rescue us from the hand of our enemy, of our sin, by taking on our sin and dying in our place on the cross. We have not been left by God in our distress just to figure things out. No, we are met by God again and again and again through his grace. And we can know that his arms are always outstretched to receive us. Because they were stretched out upon a cross for us. And so how we draw near to God is by first of all realizing that we can because of Jesus. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end of all my sin. How we draw near to God is by getting out of our own way and realizing that our sinfulness does not keep him from us. No, our sinfulness is what brought him down to us. And so we come to him. We come to him again and again for the grace that our sin-wearied souls so desperately need. How we draw near to God is by first of all recognizing that we can because of Jesus. But second, we see a second thing. We see that these people, after they've been rescued by God, they, they continue to return to their wicked ways. And, and this is what God says at the end of the passage. He says in verse 21 and 22, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, where they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did. We're told that God left these enemies to test his people. Now, when we think of testing, I think usually we think of like what we have to sit in a classroom and do. You know, and maybe some of you are hearing that word and like it's giving you PTSD to high school. Maybe you're still in high school. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, it's like you're just remembering these tests and how, how hard it is, right? Um, and so that's what we think. Like, like God is somehow, he's putting us through some stuff. This is the exam. We better get it right. And so we even say things. It's very common for Christians to say things like, God must be testing me. I hope I pass this time so I can move on because I'm done with this test. And we think that somehow God gives us things to, so, that, so that he can see how we respond. Like he's not sure where we're at. So he wants to give us some things to kind of like see where we're at. Let, let's think about that just for, for a second. Does God need to be shown anything about us? Let me ask it another way. Is there anything that God does not know about you? Let me ask that another way. The God who made you. The God who says that he knows all things. The God who says in Psalm 139 that his eyes can pierce the darkness and nothing that is hidden is hidden from him. Does this God need to put us through anything to see what's going on inside of us? Absolutely not. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And so we need to be clear. This test, it's not for him. This test is for us. This test is not to show things about us to God. It's to show us things about, to us about ourselves. It's to, it's to get us to see where our heart's at. How's our walk with the Lord going? And just a side note, but, but I love how Scripture talks about our obedience to God as walking with the Lord. Did you, did you see that in verse 22? It says, see if they'll walk in the ways um, of the Lord. It's talking about being obedient to his commandments. You know? And I love that it describes it as a walk. Because that tells me a couple things. First of all, it tells me, Walking is not about perfection. 
It's about direction. I've never looked at someone and been like, wow, that's a perfect walker. Look at how they walk. I've never, have you seen that? Have you seen that walk? No, right? Because walking is not about perfection. Walking is about direction. Which direction are we going in? And so that's what God wants for us. He's not looking, he's not, he's not expecting us to follow him perfectly. Scripture says he knows our frame. He knows that we're dust. He knows that we're unique. He's not expecting us to follow him perfectly. He just wants us to follow him persistently. He wants us to follow him in the direction of his way. He wants us to go his way. And so, again, so often I think that we just, we fail. And so since we're not perfect, we just give up the whole thing. I can't do it. It's like, well, it's never about your perfection. It's about your direction. So get up and keep moving. Keep going his way. You know what else this tells me? Not only, is, not only is it telling me that, like, I don't have to be perfect, but I just have to be persistent. It also tells me, you know, when you take a walk, what are you doing on a walk? Well, it says walking in the ways of the Lord. We're going God's way, which means we're going with God. It's relational. Walking is relational. My parents have been in a relationship for, oh, I'm going to get in trouble. I think it's 37, 38 years, something like that. Um, they've known each other since high school, so even before then. Uh, ever since they've been married, I double-checked this with my dad, so this is true. Um, unless they've been physically separated, like trips or whatever, uh, they've gone on a walk together every day of their lives. They estimate, I don't know, it's, it's several thousand miles that they've walked together at this point over all that time. And I tell you what, they've got to know each other really well through those walks. Because walking is relational. That's what God's inviting us into. As we keep his commands, we're not just doing the right thing. We're experiencing a sweet relationship with him. Walking is not about perfection. It's about direction. And as we go in God's direction, as we can see, continue to do that more consistently, well, the longer you walk with someone, the more you're going to know someone. And the more you're going to experience the sweetness of who they are. And so God tests us to show us what's going on inside of us. And not just showing us that we then kind of learn it and then move on. It's not, again, this is not like we're going to pass this test and that's it. We graduate. No, there's no graduating from this, friends. If you were to give me a calculus test, it doesn't matter how many times you give it to me to take. I will fail it every single time. I promise you. I promise you, I could study for, for, for years, which first of all, I won't because I think calculus is a waste of time. Sorry to all the engineers out there. It's actually important, if you're, you know, I guess for some people. But for me in my life, calculus makes no difference. I'm grateful to other, I, I'm grateful other people know how to do that, and you can build my house, and, uh, and I'm just going to do this type of thing and do something else and be completely oblivious of math. Praise the Lord. God is good. Um, and so I, I, don't, I don't know anything about abstract math. I don't. You give me a calculus test, I will fail it. Every single time. It doesn't matter how many times I take it, I'll never pass it. And so all you'll do, if you continue to give me that test, all you'll do is show me again and again and again how I need someone's help. And that's what God's doing with this test. He's not trying to get us to pass it so we move on to something else. He keeps these tests in our lives so that we'll see again and again and again that we need his help. Notice, it doesn't say here at all that God ever fully delivered them out of his enemy's hands. Actually, it says the exact opposite. It says, verse 23, that God left those nations and did not drive them out. The test stayed, not because God was being mean, but because he knows that these were forgetful people. And so he continued to put things in their lives that were going to remind them again and again how much they needed 
there's this idea that goes around and gets said a lot that, you know, God never gives us more than we can handle. This text is telling us that is absolutely not true. Next time you feel like God gives us no more than I can handle, I should be strong enough for this. Um, say, get behind me, Satan, because that is not true. God gives us more than we can handle all the time. These Israelites are given far more than they can handle. They're in the midst of their enemies, and these enemies are never removed from them. They're always surrounding them. They're always a threat to them. That is, and they're, they're all bigger than them. They all have better technology than them. Like, they're giving way more than they could possibly handle by themselves. God gives us things, God gives us things more than we can handle all the time, but he never gives us things that are more than he can handle. He gives us things that are more than we can handle, but never more than he can handle, and because he wants us to live in a place of dependency on him. We are people who are prone to forget. We are people who can take in the love of God and be moved in a moment, but then our minds and hearts, they just, they just constantly leak. It's like we got all these little holes in it. We just constantly leak. And so the love we had for Christ and desire to follow him yesterday can just leak out of us today. And so you know what that says? What that says is we just need more of Christ. Praise God for what he did yesterday. I still need him today. And praise God for I'm going to experience him today. But guess what? I'm going to need him tomorrow. There's not a day that goes by that we are not desperately dependent upon Christ. There's not a day that goes by where we are not prone to forget. And we are desperately need, needing to remember him and who he is and what he's done. And friends, this is why scripture, as you read scripture, and there's all these different practices that gives us as Christians to do to remember Christ. Right? Tells us to read, tells us to read scripture because it's our daily bread. And Jesus said in John 5.39, it's all about me. So, so we need to read scripture in order to know Christ. We are to pray. Ephesians 1.18, to have the, our, our, the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we might see Christ. Right? We are to confess our sins, 1 John 1, 1.9. Why? So that we can be cleansed of them by, by, by the blood of Christ. We are to confess our sins one to another, James 5.16. Why? So we can encourage each other in our faith in Christ. We are to worship together as a church. Why? So that we can be in community and keep our eyes on Christ and run the race that is set before us, Hebrews 3.13. We're to do this consistently, not neglecting to be together, Hebrews 10.25. We, we are to sing songs one another so that Christ might dwell in our hearts richly through faith, Colossians 3.16. We, we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we're told. Right? So Jesus, Jesus shared a meal with his disciples before he died. And Luke chapter 24, he says he, he takes bread and he broke it. He pours out drink the color of blood and says, take and eat and drink these things. Why? So that you remember me. Right, God's given us all these things that we're to do as Christians, but why are we to do them? Not because we're just going through rituals, not because we're just doing the Christian thing. Why are we to give ourselves these things? Because we need him. Because we need him, and this is how we meet Christ through them. Man, if we read the Bible just as a chore, as we read it as a dusty history book, we'll never pick it up. But if we read it as a place of God, I need you today. I need to meet you today. I need to know what you've said to me today. God, come to me. Give me a word from Christ. Establish and guard my heart. Friends, that will drive you into the word. Prayer is a challenge. Prayer is hard. I close my eyes and get distracted. Oh, you want to grow in praying. Realize that you need the power of the Spirit to see Christ. And so pray, God, I need you to come and fill me with your Spirit. Because without you, I can't even see him. I can't even know him. So Spirit, come. Like desperate prayers are the prayers that we need. Friends, God has given us many different things to do in order to experience him. 
but we'll only want to do that if we see our need for him. And so I think what this text is really asking us to consider is, do you see your need for Christ? Do you see your need for Christ? As we see this cycle, as we see this cycle of people getting saved and then going back and then getting saved and then going back, friends, we're meant to see that we need a better Savior. We need a greater Savior, and we have one in Jesus. And so do you see your need for Christ today? And I'm not just talking to people who have yet to put their faith in Jesus. I am talking to you. You've yet to surrender your life to Christ. I pray today you would see your need for him. I pray today would be the day of salvation for you, where you would come to know him for the first time. But I'm not just, when I say do you see your need for Christ, I'm not, I'm not just talking to people who don't know him. I'm talking to people like myself and like these Israelites who can know a lot of things about him, but then don't always realize that they don't actually know him. And so, as we just come to a close, it's really just two questions I want you to consider. One, what's been getting in the way of your relationship with God? What's been getting in the way of your relationship with God? Are there false gods that you've been pursuing that God wants to rescue you from today? Is there anyone or anything that's been turning your heart to Him? If so, I do think this text is meant to be a warning. Bridge out. Don't go that way. But it's also meant to be an invitation. Turn and come back to the Lord. And so what's getting in the way of your relationship with God? Second, are there ways that God wants you to grow in experiencing your need for Jesus? So, so this is kind of what do I need to turn from and what do I need to turn to? What do I need to turn from? What do I need to turn to? Are there ways that God wants you to grow in experiencing more of your need to Jesus? To turn for him. Maybe scripture reading has become a chore, and a chore that you've been neglecting. Maybe prayer is something that you just don't give yourself to very often. Maybe being consistent in worship here. You come in and it's convenient, but something else comes up at the drop of a hat. I don't really need church. Right? Are there ways that God wants you to grow in experiencing your need for Jesus? I'm not sure how God is speaking to you, but I do know God is giving us all the same invitation. God wants more for us than just knowing about him. He wants us to experience a deep intimacy with him. So let's just bow our heads and bow our hearts. And just ask God to show us how he wants to respond to his words. Just have a time of, of prayer between you and the Lord.